we wanna talk about uh, Galatians chapter three. And I wanna give you a little bit of background. You have a map on your handout, and on that handout, uh, you're gonna see a map of Paul's first missionary journey. So this is the ancient Near East, it's the Middle East, and it's from the time of about 48 to maybe around 48 AD, 46 to 48. And what happens is Paul becomes a Christian. In other words, he has an encounter with Christ. And then he goes to the church in Antioch, Syria, and he becomes a teacher there. And they decide that they're gonna send some people out to go proclaim the good news. They're gonna go be evangelists or traveling preachers. You know, think Billy Graham. They're just gonna go from town to town, and, but think Billy Graham with no Christians. You know, it's going in and we're gonna just tell you and teach you the gospel. So they, he basically takes off and he goes through the route that you'll see on that map, but he goes through uh, over into Greece. And if you go north through Greece, you'll get up into what's modern day Turkey. And one of the provinces in the, what's modern day Turkey and used to be the Roman province of Asia, there's a big area called Galatia. And those churches in that region, there weren't any until the apostle Paul went through it. And so he begins to build churches. People become Christians, they start meeting in houses, and he, uh, he begins to form churches. So. Uh, those churches, he moves on. You know, he teaches them and then he moves on and he moves through Galatia. He ends up, after a couple of years worth of traveling, he ends up back in Antioch. Well, when he gets there, he gets word. And somewhere around maybe 50 AD, so 18 months later or so, he gets word that there's trouble in those churches that there's difficulty in the churches. And it's not difficulty from persecution, that has happened before. You'll see that in the New Testament that he writes letters to the churches saying, hey, we're being persecuted, we're being uh, put in jail, etc." And he writes letters to encourage them. In your New Testament, you'll see some letters like that. But something unique is happening to these churches in the region of Galatia. And that is that there were teachers going through that region and they were Jews who had become Christians. And what I mean when I say that is they were Jews following the law of Moses, they were devout Jews, meaning they were trying to be observant, and their understanding of Jesus being the Messiah was very narrow. What they decided was Jesus is the Messiah for the Jewish people. He's the savior for the Jews. So the only way a Gentile, a non-Jew, can be saved is to become a Jew first, right? And so you would have to be circumcised and you would have to begin following all of the laws of Moses, the 613 written laws, and then some of the oral laws of Moses. So that's what they were teaching. They went in and they said, look, Paul doesn't have the authority to tell you something like you can be saved by, by grace, that faith, your trust in Christ is what saves you. He said he doesn't have the authority to do it. And in fact, he doesn't really know the whole story. Yes, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised, have your children circumcised, follow the 613 laws. And so Paul opens up by saying to them, you know, what, why have you so quickly deserted 
this message. And in chapter two, he spends a lot of time defending his apostleship, meaning he said, look, I'm a, a more devout Jew than they were. I was persecuting the church, but when I had an encounter with Christ, I saw the other apostles and I said, this is the message that Christ told me. And they said, that's exactly right. And they said, why don't you, you're called to go preach to the Gentiles. We are called to go preach to Jews all over the world. So let's be together. So there wasn't any disagreement between like Peter and James and John and those that had been with Jesus for the three years and Paul. There was no disagreement there. You just had these zealous believers who said, no, that can't be that you're just saved by grace through faith in Christ. You surely have to clean up your act first. So in our last lesson, we talked a little bit about legalism and license. And this uh, are two ways that churches get off track. And this is legalism. Legalism is requiring things God doesn't require and license is allowing things God doesn't allow. This case happens to be legalism. Probably the biggest problem in the church in America today is more license. But both of these things exist and they have always existed. So as chapter three opens, Paul is going to go into this and he's gonna say, look, I wanna contrast faith and the works of the law. He said, I want to demonstrate to you how foolish it is to put your trust in your behavior, in following a law, following a, a code of conduct. Now, does conduct matter? Of course, but it doesn't save you. It's not a matter of act well enough and then you're saved. He said, if you think that, that's not a Christian idea. And he's right, that's not a Christian idea. So he opens up chapter three, and I'll read you verses one through five. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Christ Jesus was clearly portrayed as crucified, meaning I preach this to you. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? I wanna come back to that. Have you suffered so much for nothing if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? So let's break that down just a little bit. So he first starts out, and it's very harsh, isn't it? You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? after starting by placing your trust in Christ, are you trying to finish by just being good people? You know, he's, he's very blunt. Now you can tell from the rest of this letter that he loves the Galatians. He spent a lot of time with them. He cares about them. And yet he is, this is so serious that he's willing to confront them. And it's kind of the difference between tough love and kind of a mushy sentimentalism. And Paul is very kind and gentle at times, but when he thinks that it needs to be very direct, he is. And so this sounds very harsh, but he actually loves them enough to say the hard things to them. And that is, this is not Christian, this will not save you. You have lost your way with the gospel. He says, who has 
bewitched you. That is an interesting word because it's the only time in the New Testament that that word is used. And it basically means who has cast a spell on you. In other words, the way you're behaving now, I don't even know who you are anymore. You know, in other words, it's like somebody cast a spell on you. And what happened to your senses? You know, you've kind of gone out of your senses. He says, you believed what I told you, but now here you are trying to pursue this by works. There's a great quote from a prominent theologian. He says this, one of the most dangerous dichotomies in the Christian life is for the spiritual to be divorced from the doctrinal, experience to be divorced from theology. So the reason I bring this up is I wanna take a time out here and look at this situation. So what's happening? So you have these, they're called, by the way, Judaizers, is the name given to these teachers. And you're gonna see them in other books of the Bible. They were going through the whole Christian world. The apostles in Acts chapter 15 issued a letter to the Gentile Christians saying, that's not true. And you don't have to keep the law of Moses. And yet, these people were out there preaching it nonetheless. I think they were probably sincere. They probably meant what they said. They probably believed what they said. They believed that that was correct, but they were tragically wrong. And that's where the idea of theology comes in. On the one hand, their emotional reaction, these teachers was, no way in the world, you scuzzy Gentiles, you behave like animals, you have no manners, you have no holiness, there is no way you can come before our holy God. You surely, you have to clean up your act first. I think they were sincere and they felt strongly about it. They felt very passionately about it, but they were dead wrong. And so this interface between experience and theology, emotion and theology is something that I really, uh, let's see if we'll take some time here to restart this and see if we can get this back. So we're gonna power this off and in the meantime, I'm gonna keep talking about uh, the idea of emotion and uh, theology because theology is, the, is basically how you think about God. Theology is how you think about God. And so, hang on, we're working on it. And thank you, Apple. So, theology is, it sounds like it's all about how much you know, and it's all about systematic or historical theology, but basically what it's about is just, what are your ideas about God? And as my friend Dr. Cliff Sanders likes to say, Everybody has a theology, and that's true. Everybody has some idea about God. Everyone has a theology. The difference is some of them are just really bad. You know, some of them are just heretical. I mean, they're just not Christian. But everybody has a theology. Everybody also has different emotional reactions to different situations and uh, circumstances. So that's also... Uh, not a new thing. The problem comes when those two things get into conflict with one another. Okay. 
so when those two things get in conflict with one another, you end up having a hard time deciding how am I gonna go? You know, is it what I know? Is it the doctrine? Is it what the Bible says? Or is it how I feel about this situation? I'll give you a great contemporary example. There's a theologian, very liberal theologian, uh, who has written a book recently that talks about uh, there's no hell, uh, nobody's going to hell, everybody's going to heaven, et cetera, et cetera. But his point is this. He said this, if a loving God exists, there's no way he could do, and then just fill in the blank with whatever you want. In other words, a loving God would never do this. That's a theology. It's a really bad theology because it's mainly emotionally based, isn't it? When I say that, well, I can't believe in a God if he's gonna do this, what am I really saying? Is that true or is it not true? Well, I have no idea if it's true, I just know I don't like it. It's emotionally based, right? So, uh, plug this back in here. All right. So, John Wesley, uh, kind of the founder of Methodist, uh, there we go. All right, do not disturb me. Thank you, we got it up, great. All right, hopefully we won't get any more texts. I one time, this is totally off the subject, but one time I was teaching and uh, it was in here and uh, Marty sent me a text and text pops up, happened to be about a relatively sensitive issue that we were doing and I thought, you gotta learn to turn that off. And that just goes to show you, I didn't really learn. <laughs> I'm just not that bright, actually. So anyway, so here's what I wanna show you. I wanna talk about, uh, I wanna talk about the idea of the Wesleyan quadrilateral. John Wesley was having this same problem. He had people that were t turning away from scriptural teaching because they just emotionally couldn't accept that teaching. And so he came up with this idea. He said, here's how we learn to think about God. We learn from scripture and we learn from tradition, we learn from reason, and we learn from experience. And so basically, he said, these are the four ways you form your ideas about God. You can read the scripture, you can reason, he gave us a mind to reason, you can use your experience, and you can lean on church tradition. Well, it's called a quadrilateral, that's not what Wesley called it, and that's really not a good idea because it makes you think all four of those things are equal. That's not what Wesley taught. Wesley taught that there's one overriding thing that's true, and that is scripture. Everything else is subservient to that. He said that when you have a fully formed faith, your reason will support the, what scripture says and tradition will help guide you and keep you on that trajectory and that Christian experience, once your mind is formed, your experience will emphasize the truth of the gospel. So this idea of what does the role of emotion and experience play? It plays a confirming role. When you have a situation where the truth of the scripture and my feelings about it are in conflict, 
John Wesley would say that is because Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2 said this, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He would say, you have not renewed your mind because once you do, once you think like Jesus thinks, you read the scriptures and you accept the truth of what God is saying, then your reason, traditions, and experiences will begin to deepen the truth of that. And so what happens in churches in Galatia as well as here, what they were having trouble with is scripture and tradition. These Judaizers were saying, look, we've got 1400 years of following the law of Moses. You can't just switch that. What we hear more today is, well, I happen to feel this is right or this is not right and that's in conflict with scripture. I like Wesley because Wesley harmonized that. He said, when you are buy into the truth of scripture, everything else is gonna be a confirming experience. Your experience will deepen your faith, not cheapen your faith. So that's what's happening to the Galatians. So he says this, he goes on and he begins to elaborate on what he's saying. He said, consider Abraham. In other words, Abraham is before Moses, before the law of Moses, but he's the great patriarch. And they thought, well, Abraham's righteous because God said he's a righteous man. That's great. And Paul says, how did he get that way? And that's what he's gonna emphasize to him. He said, look, these guys are teaching you something that doesn't even make sense. Now he's gonna go to reason, isn't he? He said, it's not what I preach to you, and it doesn't even make sense. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The word believe means trust, have faith. He had faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance. All the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is anyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified uh, before God by works of the law. No one is justified by the law because the righteous will live by faith. So he's quoting from the Old Testament. He goes back to Genesis and says, Abraham was considered righteous because he trusted God, not because of he followed the law or because of his conduct. Habakkuk says, the righteous will live by faith. Habakkuk lived during the law of Moses and he said it's always been about faith and it will continue to be about faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now that's a strong statement. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. I wanna take you back to the book of Genesis and just remind you of this. So this is Abraham, think 2000 BC. Moses is gonna come along about 1400 BC with the law, and then of course Jesus, 1400 years later, with you're saved by grace through faith. So what he's saying is it's always been by faith. And there was a promise made to Abraham that even the Gentiles were gonna be reconciled to God. And here's where he made it. The Lord said to Abram, 
Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. And he did. He trusted God and he was credited to him as righteousness. He said, I'm gonna do three things. I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Not the Jews will be blessed through you. All the people on earth will be blessed through you. So what's Paul doing? He's trying to reason with them. He said, look, inspiration. Jesus told the apostles, this is, this is the gospel, that you are saved by grace through faith, through your trust in Jesus Christ. He said, that's scripture. This is reason. Connect the dots, people. It's always been about faith. It's never been about works of the law. So he begins to reason with them. And so he says that basically by faith, we can receive this promise of the Spirit. What he's saying is, is the righteousness, the reconciliation, the uh, being in a right relationship with God, for Abraham it came through faith. And God said, I'm gonna bless all the nations through you. And he says, and it still comes through faith. And he says, therefore, that's how you connect to this promise. So, then he goes on. He says, what then was the purpose of the law? Well, that's a really good question, isn't it? He says, well, if you've got Abraham is saved, he's declared righteous because of his trust in God, and you've got Christ, you're saved by grace through faith, and now that's true for everyone. That promise is gonna be true for Jew, for Gentile alike. Why did we have the law of Moses then? What is it there for? Well, there's kind of a two-part answer, but the first one is really interesting. He said, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Okay, there are so many arguments about what that means, it isn't even funny. And I don't wanna spend a lot of time on it except to tell you this. What it's basically talking about is a mediator. I want you to think about a covenant, a contract. So this. The law of Moses was a covenant. It was like, I'm gonna do this and you're gonna do that. God made a contract with the Jewish people, this group of people he had chosen for a specific purpose. And he said, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. He says, you're gonna be priests and a light to the nations and you are going to show them and show them the way back toward me and I'm going to bless you. And sure enough, when you read the Old Testament, you realize, the Jewish people shouldn't even exist today. I mean, the nation of Israel should have been destroyed 10 times over historically, but God was with them through this. He says, and your part is, you're only gonna be able to be a light to the nations, an example of the world, if you can show them what holiness looks like. So here's 613 rules that I have typed up for you. So this is a Rembrandt painting of Moses coming down from the mountain. And this is what I wanna to talk to you about this covenant. This is just a really cool thing. So he comes down and typically what people think are written on those tablets are the 10 commandments. There are 613 commandments, but those, those are representative of the whole law of Moses. Okay, so the, the Decalogue, the 10 commandments. And he comes down with these two tablets. Now I know what you're thinking. Yeah, he probably used a big font. And so he got one through five on one tablet and he got six through 10 on the other tablet. No, he didn't. Think about any contract, any covenant you've made. For example, you go close on your house. 
something like that. Everybody gets a copy of the agreement, all right? Seller gets a copy, buyer gets a copy. You do a contract of some kind, both parties get a copy of this agreement. You know, you're gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, and you have your copy, I have my copy, there's no misunderstanding. Those two tablets were two copies of the Ten Commandments. One was God's copy, and one was the copy of the people. This is the covenant that we are making. And so this idea, typically there's a mediator, there's somebody in the middle. You know, you have your real estate agent who is facilitating this, and that's what he's talking about as a mediator. But what he's saying is, in this situation, God was the mediator as well as one of the parties. And God was very unilateral. What Moses brought down was both copies of the contract. And he, God said, you can keep my copy of this contract. And you know where they put them? They put them in the ark. They put them in the most holy place in the temple. And he said, you can have my copy as well. It's God unilaterally saying, I'm making a covenant with you, but it's for my purposes and I love you. I'm not your enemy. I'm trying to do something here with the law that is for your good. What is that? So he goes on and he says this, is the law then opposed to the promises of God? So if indeed the law was made as a covenant, did it get in the way of the promise of Abraham coming true in Jesus? What was it there for? He says, absolutely not. If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. In other words, if you could be holy enough, if you could be perfect, if you could live the life that Jesus lived, then you don't need grace. You would be holy before God. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. It's through faith to those who have faith, who trust. Before this faith came, we were held prisoner by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So let's talk about two things in this. What he's saying is there was a problem. God makes this promise to Abraham, but the problem is that we have a death sentence. We are held prisoner to sin. We are in rebellion to God. That's a problem that's difficult to get over, isn't it? It's like entering into a contract to sell a vehicle, and so you sit down there like, yeah, I'm gonna sell you this car. But you don't have the car. And that's kind of where we were. We're making a covenant, and he goes, you, your soul's mortgaged. You don't even own your own soul. You're a prisoner to sin. Satan owns your soul. And so what he's saying is, is we were all prisoners of sin. This is a very theological idea, and the theological word for this is total depravity. Total depravity of humanity. Now today, depravity means that you're bad. That's not what this means. Total depravity doesn't mean that you do bad things. You have friends that aren't believers in Christ that do good things. That's not what this means. And it doesn't matter what your theology is. If it's a Christian theology, you believe in total depravity because what total depravity is means that you are helpless 
to become righteous on your own. In other words, you are helpless to complete this contract on your own. The total depravity of humanity is simply a way of describing this. We are prisoners of sin. And that's the problem that has to be gotten over. There's gonna have to be a price to be paid and we are gonna have to be freed from the bondage of sin before we can inherit that promise of Abraham. Rebels don't inherit the promise to the citizens, if you will. And that's why you'll see a lot of citizenship language and family language in the Bible. Well, we're outside the family. We're not citizens of God's kingdom. We're rebels, we're prisoners of sin. And so that theological idea, and it's a fundamental truth of the gospel, is that we were helpless to do this on our own. He said, if you could do it on your own, this is what he means when he said, if a law, in other words, if a standard of conduct had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by a standard of conduct. There is no standard of conduct that you and I can live up to. He said, that's a problem. That's why the law was given. The 1400 year law of Moses was a guardian. And I wanna tell you about this, there's a really peculiar word that's used here. The NIV translates it, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Uh, then we are no longer under the supervision of the law. That Greek word, and it's the same word there, it just, the NIV explains it but doesn't translate it, is pedagogue. Now we think of a pedagogue as a teacher. That's not exactly what you can see why, you're gonna see in a minute why we think it's a teacher, how it came down to us, but what a pedagogue was, was a slave, and matter of fact, that's a, on the upper right is a, is a little statue of a pedagogue and a child. And on this Greek vase, you see a picture of the pedagogue, the older slave on the right, and the young man on the left. In Greek culture, and by the way, very smart of Paul to use a Greek cultural reference, because all these Galatians, they're Greek, they're not Jews. And so they understand what a pedagogue is. When he says the law was a pedagogue, they go, oh, I know what that is. A pedagogue was a slave in a household. And when the kids were young, the pedagogue was in charge of two things, taking them to school and bringing them home, and then basically being a disciplinarian, managing their conduct. So they weren't the teacher, to teach them everything, they were there to train them, if you will. They were a guardian. They would take you to school, they would correct your manners. Uh, pedagogues could even uh, do time out, they could do punishment. In other words, they were responsible for managing that child's behavior to teach them manners and to make sure they got to school, got home from school, did their chores. They were basically a guardian, they were a disciplinarian. And Paul says, that's what the law was. Because you see, we were spiritually, humanity was spiritually like a toddler. And we needed to become mature. Well, how is he gonna get us from prisoners of sin to mature? How is he gonna grow up the human race, if you will? Well, he's gonna do the same thing you and I do with toddlers. Think about it, when you've got a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old, 22-year-old, no, really. If you've got a little kid, you have a lot of rules, don't you? Why? Because that's how you train up a toddler. Do you just say, hey, general principle in our family, B 
be nice to everybody, now go have fun. That's not gonna work. That's called free-range parenting, which means go let the wolves raise you. I don't know, you know, just leave me alone. Bottom line, you put attention, you put rules, you put guidance, you do discipline. That's what the law of Moses was, 613 rules to train them how to be holy. Humanity was basically in the toddler phase. And God says, we have a problem. I need to get you to here. I need to get you to Jesus Christ, where you can actually place your trust in Christ. And he says, so I'm gonna start out with toddlers, and I'm gonna give you these rules. I'm gonna put you under a pedagogue. I'm gonna get the law is gonna be your guide that's gonna take you where you need to go and is gonna train you and slap your wrist when you do this wrong and show you how to do that right. That's what the law was. It was a pedagogue to lead us to Christ. It was the way God grew us up as humanity. And so for 1400 years, the law trained us what holiness looked like. When Christ came, it's as though then we became adults. We became mature. When Jesus comes, does Jesus talk to humanity like we're toddlers? Not anymore. Because for 1400 years, the whole world knew about the law of Moses. They knew that, oh, that Yahweh, that God, this is his code of holiness. Whoa, this is a strict family. In other words, they have high standards in this family. That's exactly what God chose the Jews to do. Show the world what holiness looks like. So Jesus comes and he starts preaching things like, and you can't look at the gospels and say, okay, there's 612 rules. No, he says things like, I want you to forgive. I want you to have compassion. I want you to recognize that your debts were forgiven, so I want you to forgive others. I want you to turn the other cheek. I want you to pray for your enemies. I want you to bless those that curse you. I want you to love people that are unloving. I want you to forgive people that don't deserve forgiveness. What does that sound like? Well, you aren't gonna tell your toddler that, are you? You're not gonna tell your six-year-old, well, here's some principles to live your life by. No, but by this time, we know enough about God and we know enough about holiness that he can speak to us finally as adults. He said, I want you to trust me and I want you to put these ideas in your heart and I want you to live them out. And that's what this is talking about. And that's what Paul is saying to the Galatians. He said, you wanna go back to being toddlers. If you go back to following the rules of the law, that's like having a 30-year-old woman following the same rules that she did when she was five years old. He said, do you see how silly that would be? He said, that's what you're doing. Jesus Christ came and you have been saved by grace through faith and you want to go back and live like a toddler? That's the image that he's giving them. He's trying to use reason to show them how unreasonable that that position is. So let me pause and just frame up where we've been. What's he doing? He says, you guys have lost your minds. I mean, that's really what he said. You've literally, you kind of lost your minds here. I don't know what happened to you, but you lost your minds. Because do you remember I preached to you that Christ was crucified and bore your sins? Remember you were prisoner of sin? He took that away. How did he take it away? Did he take that away because you behaved so well? Well, no, of course not, Paul. He says, exactly my point. He took that away because you placed your trust in him. He said, so why now are you gonna go back and try to earn that through your behavior? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
So he begins with the authority of scripture in chapter two. I'm an apostle, I've seen Christ, this is the gospel. Ask anybody, this is the good news of Christ. It's not good news that you have to follow 613 rules before you can even become a Christian. That's not good news. He said, this is truth. Then he moves to reason and he says, think about this. You are inheriting the promise of Abraham. Did you do that by keeping a code of conduct? No, you didn't. He appeals to their experience in the first five verses. He said, let me ask you this. Did you see the spirit of God enter this community because you all behaved really well? Did I ever tell you that if you behave a certain well, then the Holy Spirit will, you'll be sealed with the spirit? Well, no, we didn't. In fact, we received the spirit because we believed the message. He goes, exactly. That was your experience, this is your reason, and that's the scripture. And you see how he uses all of those things and they confirm one another. They, they make sense. Their experience of receiving the spirit goes along with their reason of how you inherit the promise from Abraham and it goes along with the truth that is revealed by Jesus Christ. We typically get into trouble with the gospel in the same way is we, we pit one of those things against another one of those things. And that's what was happening there. The Judaizers said, look, you know, I know what it says, but there's no way that I can personally experientially be okay with you Gentiles being saved by grace through faith. And so they pitted those against each other. And when that happens, we get very bad theology. Sometimes the theology gets dangerously bad. Experience and theology need to go together because if you have theology with no experience, it kind of becomes a stifling orthodoxy. In other words, if everybody in this room said, we know the truth, we have read the Bible, we believe that truth, we place our trust in it, but I can't say I've really experienced it. I can't say I've forgiven anybody. I can't say that I've really confirmed the truth of what Jesus is saying. And I know that you, I'm being a little silly because you as Christians know that the more you live the Christian life, the more you realize, oh yeah, what Jesus said was even truer than I thought it was. I now have experienced how true this is. But basically having theology without experience would be like knowing it without ever actually experiencing it. It's important. Having experience or emotion without theology is basically spirituality. And that is make up your own God and kind of do what you want. Those things need to go together. And that's why faith has to act. And I just wanna connect the dots here with, with the book of James, because all the New Testament is connected. Faith and works are intimately connected. Remember James says, you say I have works and you say I have faith. He's like, you're wrong. Show me your faith by what you do. In other words, faith always expresses itself. How does it express itself? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, forgiveness, compassion, grace, truth-telling. In other words, all the ways that Jesus said that it would manifest itself. And so faith always expresses itself. And that's how these things come together and combine themselves. So. Our biggest protection against getting off track as Christians is to study the word and do the word. In other words, let our experience confirm what we know to be true. Look to the past and the tradition. I mean, I'm always amazed at theologians that come up with a new doctrine and it's sort of like, seriously? 
you're really gonna stand here and tell me that 2,000 years of Christians all got it wrong and it didn't, nobody figured it out until you were born? Think about the arrogance of that. Has the church been wrong on some things? Yes, the church has been wrong on some things. But 2,000 years of Christians have held to certain very core beliefs and we should think twice before we tamper with that. He says, here's the truth. You are all sons of God. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs to the promise. Man, there is a lot in there, but he's summing up his reasoning with them. And what is he saying? He said, basically, you're not outside the family anymore. If you were out there trying to live up to God's standard, you're outside the family because you're always gonna fail. You're always gonna be a prisoner of sin. But Jesus Christ, you were adopted into the family. You are children of God. He says, through faith, not through your attainment. He says, when you were baptized into Christ, in Romans, he's gonna say, when you were baptized with Christ, you died. Your old self died and you were raised a new being. This is not a makeover. You didn't get remodeled, you got remade from nothing. He says, you have clothed yourself with Christ. In other words, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In other words, when you're baptized with Christ, you put on Christ, you become different. It's not, I behaved better, no, I became something different. He says, there's neither Jew or Greek, slave free, male or female, you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are a child of Abraham and you are heirs to the promise that was made to Abraham. So he puts really a very reasonable argument together and he said, look, the Old Testament and the New Testament intimately go together. God started something with Abraham that he's finishing with Jesus Christ. And as, when you understand that, you'll say, oh, yes, this makes sense. Of course we can't go back to the law of Moses. But I want to spend a couple minutes on this one uh, passage here because it really gets misused and misunderstood a lot. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you're all one in Christ. Sometimes Christians understand this very much out of context. I'm gonna put this in context. Very much out of context to say, look, there's no difference between anybody in Christ. Well, that's not correct at all. There are obviously differences between people in Christ. Your ethnic differences don't go away when you become Christian. Your gender differences don't go away when you become Christian. Your social status doesn't go away when you become Christian. In other words, that's just not true. And so, but what is he saying then? Well, when you put it in context, what he's saying is that, first of all, Christianity is the most tolerant religion of all religions, and that is because anyone can accept Christ. That's not true in most religions. It wasn't really true in Judaism. In Judaism, there were very much a tiered thing. In the church, there are no tiers. There are a lot of differences, but there are no tiers. There are no levels of Christians. And when I tell you about Judaism for a minute, and I don't say this to, to be negative about Judaism, but in the Orthodox Judaism of that time, this is a, this is what's called a Siddur, S-I-D-D-U-R, it's modern, but has very ancient origins. 
and it is like a Book of Common Prayer. Do we have any Episcopalians in here? Anybody familiar with the Book of Common Prayer? So it's basically, you've got your prayers. It's kind of an ordered book of readings and prayer that you do throughout the year. Well, part, uh, and this is Orthodox Judaism. This is observant Judaism. And so in those days, they would, they would do certain things. For example, the Shema, they would say that in the morning, they would say it at night. It's from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and goes on for a little while. But they would recite that in the morning and in the evening. And in the morning, uh, these, there are some blessings that are said every morning. In fact, uh, they, they, you need to be extreme. Here's what it says. You need to be extremely scrupulous concerning the blessings of the Torah. It is forbidden to utter any words of Torah, the Bible, before you recite these blessings. And so there's several blessings and they go like this. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who crowns the people of Israel with glory. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has provided me with every need. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. And then men only recite the next one. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. And so my point is not to be negative about Judaism. I want you to understand what this means in context. In the Judaism of the time, there were hierarchies of holiness, if you will, or acceptability. And what were they? Well, there were Gentiles, slaves, and women. So why does he pick those things? He said, in Christ, you are different, but there are no second-class Christians. There's not Jew or Gentile. There's not slave or free. There's not male or female. We are all one in Christ. We are not all the same in Christ, but we are all one in Christ. That's why that's there. It's at the tail end of this argument to say, do you really wanna go back to that? That's what you were when you were five years old. Now you're an adult. You are all one in Christ. Anyone can be, go from being a prisoner of sin to being a member of God's family, of being a child of God. They just need to trust in the sacrifice that Jesus made, uh, that made for them. You're saved by grace through faith. So I hope you can see, I haven't done the best job of articulating this, I think, but I hope you can see this chapter is a tight little argument. He basically starts out hitting them right between the eye and says, you foolish Galatians, you have lost your minds. He said, your experience told you that you received the spirit because of the word you heard. You certainly didn't go behave really well before you could do it. Then he reasons and he said, that promise to Abraham came by faith it's gonna to come to you by faith as well. And so he appeals to their experience and he appeals to their reason and he appeals to the truth of the gospel about Jesus Christ. And he said, all these things are testifying that you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, not through your behavior. Now that's important for you and me because, and this is just a thought to leave you with, we get wrapped up in that too. Now we're not tempted to follow the law of Moses, at least I don't think you are, but we just have a different code of conduct, right? 
we think, well, if you do these certain things, then you'll be a good Christian. If you don't do these things, you're a bad Christian. Well, if there are things that God requires, then we need to do those things. But our conduct, how nice you are, how many times you bought coffee for somebody in the line behind you at Starbucks, which I'm all for that, especially if I'm behind you. But my point is, you know, is all those nice things you've done, that needs to flow out of your trust in Christ. Don't put it in front of your trust in Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? And sometimes we get that order reversed, don't we? We think, you know what? I don't think I've been following Christ very well. And that's often true. And we need to repent. We need to confess and say, Lord, you see my shortcomings. Strengthen me to be who you called me to be. Help me to walk or live in a manner worthy of my calling. Let your spirit work in me to shape me into your image. Those are great prayers. What's not a good thing is to say, I better start acting better or God won't love me. Now, you don't usually say that out loud to yourself, but we play that tape, don't we? Sometimes we get so down on ourselves and we think, if I don't clean up my act, God's not going to love me anymore. That's not a Christian idea at all. You are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so don't slip into that. Don't let anybody drag you back to be a prisoner of sin, to get on that roller coaster of behavior. Oh, I'm really good. Oh, I'm really bad. Oh, God loves me. Oh, I don't know if God loves me. Oh, I'm saved. Oh, I don't know if I'm saved. That's what the Galatians were doing. And what Paul is saying, that's not the good news of Jesus Christ. You're saved by grace through faith. Rejoice in that. Now go live in a manner that reflects who your Lord is. Does that make sense? Do that this week. Say that to yourself this week. Don't slip back. Don't let anybody take you captive. And by the way, that's what we're gonna talk about. In the next chapter, he's saying, there's somebody trying to take you captive again. You're not a slave, so quit acting like a slave. So that's what we'll talk about next time. Thanks, guys.